Welcome! I'm Will. And I'm Alicia. This is Enter the Rabbit Hole. Each week we dive into and dissect the weird, the momentous, and the downright interesting. And today we're covering Feral Children Part 2. Yes, we are. Uh, Alicia, how have you been since we last talked about Feral Children? Um, I haven't seen any feral children and or interacted with any feral children, unless you count my students, who are feral in a different way. Mmm, in what way are your students feral? Uh, just a lot more growling, um, a lot more, you know, not washing their hands in the middle of a pandemic. Sure, yeah, a lot of touching of the face and body. Yeah, feral in in the fun kind of way, not in the abused child kind of way. That's good, that's good. Uh, But suffice it to say, if you had seen a feral child following on from last week's call to action, you would raise uh, the alarm to someone else. Yes, uh, I would have a little bell that I carry with me at all times, start ringing the bell, say, hear ye, hear ye, feral child, and then then I would call the police. That's good. Social services. That's good, that's good to know. Uh, My sinus infection has cleared up, so hopefully you will be hearing me crystal clear today through my... Mmm, wonderfully open nasal passages. I'm not sure that's better. Um, well, we'll let the listeners decide. Uh, Before we dive into today's episode, a quick call to action. If you're listening, go ahead and follow the show, leave us a review. Good, bad, ugly, it doesn't matter, but we would love to hear from you. Also, if you have any ideas for any future episodes, please share them with us. You can find us on etrhthepod at gmail.com or etrhthepod on all social media. So in our last episode, uh, if you haven't listened to it already, please go and check it out. We covered what might be thought of as the more traditional stories of feral children, i.e. children who were abandoned in the wilderness. Many of these children supposedly encounter animals that nurture them, and part of their behavior may imprint and affect the development of that child. Now, one of the main sources that we have been using for this series is Savage Girls and Wild Boys, A History of Savage Children by Michael Newton. Uh, It covers this subject in depth, in a sensitive, and I would say highly readable way. You would recommend? Yeah, I mean, for me personally, it wasn't my main source. I did read uh, a deal, a great deal of it, but uh, I think I used more, um, especially in this episode, the more <laughs> scholarly articles. Mm. I used a couple of scholarly articles and a lot of like Guardian um, newspaper articles. It's it's a good book though. Check it out if you want to learn more about abused kids. Yeah, look at you with your scholarly articles. I, That'll come up later. Yeah, I watched you push your imaginary spectacles uh, up your nose. Yeah, ever since that. I got a laser eye surgery, I don't have to do that anymore. No, you just keep flicking yourself in the forehead by accident. So why don't you get us started with, uh, with our first case study of the day? So our first case study mm. is Casper Hauser. Casper Hauser is a bit of a mystery. So the fact that no one can say much about Casper Hauser with any level of certainty could help explain why he has persisted in the minds of many people for over 200 years. You can still visit a statue of him today in Ansch. I don't know. I'm going to say Ansbach. Okay. Ansbach, Germany. So this statue depicts a disheveled teenage boy walking hunched over with a hat clutched in his hand. 
I had never heard about Kasper Hauser before, but as soon as I started reading articles about him and had seen, there are a couple of drawings or a couple of paintings of Kasper Hauser. I couldn't get the image of uh, Gunther, the German foreign exchange student from The Simpsons, out of my mind. You know, like the the chubby little blonde boy who um, he has like an episode where the kids are running after him and he's like, please don't chase me, I'm full of chocolate. I don't. I can't say with any certainty that Casper Hauser was anything like that, but that, but that is the image that persists in my mind. Yeah, I mean, sure, why not? Although you always start off any reference to The Simpsons with, you know that episode of The Simpsons? And my answer is always no. I forget that for a period of time you were, like, living inside of a time capsule. All like right. a reverse time capsule. Not true. I had access to the outside. I just... We had a television, we just didn't have cable TV, and we didn't watch TV very often in my household. So I don't have a lot of pop culture references that other people have. I feel like the real tragedy is that you missed The Simpsons during its heyday from like season one to maybe like season 12. Is it? Because the only one that I really like out of that whole series of like adult cartoons is probably Futurama. And I know it's the same creators, but... Anyway, we're getting way off topic. Oh, way, way <laughs> off topic. Casper Heiser has nothing to do with the work of Matt Groening. Um, so the the identity of Casper Hauser is still the subject of an ongoing debate. Some people say he was a fraudster. Others believe that he was the descendant of a European royal bloodline mm. and the subject of conspiratorial intrigue. So Casper himself seems to think that he was the son of a calvary, calvary man. Oh, that's, that's a man be... in the cavalry. <laughs> All right. Well, just rude. Cal- calvary. Cal- Ca- cavalry. 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 Uh, a horse rider. A I... horseman. Sometimes I have trouble saying words. All a right? horse you know, soldier boy. I know what it means. I'm not a moron. Anyway. Cavalry. <laughs> I hate you. So... At least him being the son of a cavalryman is what one of the two letters he presented read when he first entered the outside world in May 1828. Casper, as depicted in the statue, walked into a town square in Nuremberg shortly after he was picked up by the police with the aforementioned letter addressed to the captain of a local cavalry regiment. Oh, it's just littered. You nailed it. You stuck the landing. <laughs> It was purportedly written by a local laborer who had cared for Casper as a child, but could no longer look after him. It implored the captain to take him in and train him in the military profession as his father had been. The second letter, dated 1812 and unsigned, was supposedly written by Casper's mother. It explained that his father had died and supported the first letter's request to give him military training. Oddly enough, both look to have been written by the same hand. Okay. Um, should we... Let's ju- unpack that a little yeah, bit. So okay. he has he walks into town yes. with two letters. So unlike other feral children that we've spoken about, he's not really captured. Nobody stumbles upon him. He presents himself to the outside world. Mm-hmm. And then he gets picked up by the police, possibly because he's just kind of wandering around. Maybe yeah. like vagr- vagrancy or they're just like trying to help him out. And so, like, unlike in stories like Oksana, uh, Oksana Mayala, now it's my turn. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Cavalry. <laughs> oh. Um, 
she so people are kind of left to speculate that she uh what, what her background her? was yeah. yeah or like john sabunya like he may have been in the forest for a month may have been there for a year nobody knows sure and we can guess that he spent some time with uh vervet monkeys because he was able to pick them out from uh, a little a little list of different monkey silhouettes right whereas casper hauser comes with this kind of pre-packaged backstory yeah and yeah. so one is supposed to be from this local man who has looked after him and another one from his mother dated 1812 so how old do you think he is so i believe the reports at the time put him around about 16 years old so if i if i'm dating this correctly the letter from 1812 would have been written on the year of his birth Mm -hmm. so it would have been written if it if it was written at that time it was written when he was an infant because this is him now walking into a town square in 1828. I'd be curious to see, because this this story gets really weird, so I'd be curious to see what those two letters looked like in relation to each other, not Mm -hmm. just because the handwriting was supposedly very similar, but also if one is 16 years old and one is, like, brand new, like, do they look the same? Because if so, then, hey, red flag. (laughs) Yeah, and not to tread in your storytelling either, but this is not going to be the last time in this case when weird-ass letters uh, crop up. All right, so when pressed for further information, Casper could not shed much light on these strange circumstances. He was almost completely nonverbal, his vocabulary being limited to his own name, the word horse, and I don't know. However, he was also able to say a comparatively verbose I want to be a cavalryman like my father. So let's just role play that for a minute, and and I feel relatively comfortable doing this um, uh, for reasons that I'll go into later. So he's, you know, so we're getting like Casper Hauser, Casper Hauser, horse, horse. I don't know, I don't know. I want to be a cavalryman like my father. That's yeah, yeah, and, and I would have sounded. It, yeah, it, all, all of those really flow together, I think. Yes, Same absolutely. level of intellectual... Uh, Again, as English teachers, we normally run through, like, colors, numbers, and then the periodic table of elements, and then, like, like animals, and then, like, capital cities of the world. Yeah, That's need, the order you that you learn those. to know the chemicals before you can learn about anything else, because you have to know the foundation. So, yeah. we... What makes up... Uh, like a bird mm-hmm. or or like a cat. So we make sure to teach uh, the periodic table over the objections of every single uh, parent, child, and um, superior. Yeah, they they will learn. Mm-hmm. They will. Okay. Well, um, after he said this, he was uh, placed under the care of a local school teacher, then an earl, and then another school teacher. This is kind of a theme with like feral children. Mm-hmm. Always an I- earl, right? Yeah, there's always an aristocrat that gets involved. And in terms of school teachers, I guess at this moment in time... They're like, well, you know something. I know nothing. You're, you're an educator. Whereas nowadays we tell people that we're ESL teachers and they're like, oh, you can get a real job? Okay. no, Nobody's going to give us like a mystery child and be like, raise him. Tell us what's wrong with him. And thank God for that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it really does free up our weekends to not have to deal with that. Yeah, so school teacher Earl and then another school teacher. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Two things seem to be true of Casper over the next four years. The first is that if he was indeed raised in complete isolation, 
His progress under his new host was truly phenomenal. He learned to speak German and a little Hungarian in full sentences, and was able to recount his story of being kept in isolation by a mysterious man whom he did not know. And yet he has this letter from a different man? Yeah, so when he explained what had happened to him, he was kept in some kind of cell or some kind of room, so he knew there was a man because he could hear him coming and going, and he would basically just, you know, give him food and then disappear. And then, according to Caspar Hauser, he would sometimes drink some funny-tasting water, because this is a, a thing with and him as well. And then he woke up. It's not, <laughs> no, no, it's not one of those kind of... um strange, uh, like a strange uncle story. No. Uh, so he would drink some funny tasting water, which was presumably laced with something like chloroform. And then he would wake up and like his clothes had been changed and he'd been like given a sponge bath and had like his hair, hair and nails. Clipped. You're right. It's not weird at all. That's, that's perfectly normal. Didn't, isn't that like, <laughs> didn't you have an uncle that did that for you when you were a kid? Uh, no, I do I that to my didn't. dog sometimes. But... Yeah. I didn't actually learn how to dress until I was like well into my 20s because I, I, I just kept waiting for somebody to drug me, uh, but while getting progressively more and more dirty. Yeah, and then he would drug himself, but then he'd wake up and nothing had changed, so... Yeah, yeah, pretty much. All right, so uh, he also learned to read and write, to sing, and even to draw. And we saw some of his pictures. They were really quite good, considering that Oksana Malaya could draw at the level of a five-year-old yeah when she was in her 20s mm-hmm. and his drawings have perspective and like cross 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 hatching yeah i mean they're better than mine man and i did like higher art as secondary school i did advanced higher art which is a it used to be a thing yeah they've it's, changed it now it's very yeah it's very good um so i that to me more than almost anything that and learning uh the languages so quickly kind of cast doubt on his story. The second thing that seems apparent was that Casper was incredibly unlucky. On three separate occasions, he was stabbed or shot, the final incident occurring in December of 1833, and was fatal. He stumbled back to his dwelling and claimed to have been shot by a stranger. When his host circled back to find his attacker, they found a bag containing a note. The note was written backwards and alluded to the murderer's identity, a person identified by the initials M-L-O. No further information was given, but on later inspection it appeared as though the note had not only contained several grammatical errors Casper was known to make, but was folded in a style that was characteristic of him. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, what to say here? I mean, he sounds like Steve Martin's character in The Jerk. Mm. Yeah. Where he's running around and it's like, who keeps shooting these cans? Someone's trying to kill these cans. Um, also, maybe he was uh, murdered by Matthew Lillard of Scream and Scooby-Doo 1 yeah, and 2 fame. Yeah, I was going to say Scooby-Doo. Yeah. But he was like Matthew Lillard original. So the one that we know is, is that like... that the only like ML? I couldn't think... <laughs> I, I want Martin Luther Orange. 
I don't know. You think? Can you think of another MLO I, no, that has a I taste for murdering I German boys? I wasn't going to try it. It actually makes me think of like what's the multi-tiered marketing scheme? The acronym for oh, uh, <laughs> MLM, MLM. No, I don't think he was murdered by somebody as as part of a Ponzi scheme. Mm. Well, yeah. you know, who knows? He he uh, he decided that he was going to sell makeup door to door, but he just couldn't enlist enough of his housewife friends. At the time, all the makeup was lead and it was murdering people. Yeah, so. he was killing more people than he was getting to buy the makeup. Well, see, the thing about lead makeup, and this is a fun fact for you, is that if you put on lead makeup to make your skin white, it will destroy your skin, so you will have to use more lead makeup and just further the problem. But if you are selling lead makeup, it's an excellent scheme. Oh, yeah, because, well, I mean, you, you've got a customer for life. A short, very painful life, but a customer for life nonetheless. So we're trying to get all the jokes out now because the next two stories are pretty horrific. It's going to get real dark <laughs> real fast. Okay, so... There, uh, the letter was also, let's talk about the inconsistencies in the letter. Mm -hmm. So mirror writing. So written back to front in like some of the, it's like you're trying to put together like a code, but like for, for like an eight year old and mm. in like their STEM studies class. Yeah. Or like, you know, like a home escape the room for your kids, like birthday yeah. party or something. Yeah. But that's like, that's like the first clue. That's the one that they definitely have to get. Yeah, really, I mean, I have some theories we can wait until, yeah, we, yeah. So let, we'll wait for the theories. This. So it was written uh, in mirror writing with, like, errors that he always made when writing, and then he also folded into, like, this little kind of triangle, I think, is how he folded, like, all his papers when he was... Like a little, uh, not a dream catcher, a... Like a little football? I was going to say, like, you know, the ones that you make as a kid, and then you're like, give me a number, give me a color, oh. one, two, three, four, okay, uh, yeah, you're, you're going to marry somebody ugly. All right. Yeah. Wow. That was always my experience. <laughs> okay. Um, so there are so many inconsistencies in his story, but one thing that is invariably true is that any retelling starts to smell very fishy very quickly. So why are we talking about him? Because if you've been listening to our accounts of feral children thus far, it just doesn't add up. How is a boy raised without human contact for 16 years able to even interact with other people at all? How could he have learned to speak new words, let alone full sentences, and or even read and write? How was he able to draw intricate images of houses and flowers beyond the level of a four-year-old? If these claims sound dubious now, hold on to your seats. Because our next real-life examples will make his story sound even less likely. Mm -hmm. So before we leap into those examples, um, what is your money on in terms of uh, who the real Casper Hauser was? So there's like a lot of conspiracy theories about him being like related to royalty and that's yeah. why he was attacked so many times. I don't really see that as being true. Like who who would really care? There have actually been a couple of DNA tests taken. Now, the name of the the family member that he was meant to be related to escapes me now. But essentially, uh, if he, the notion is that if he had survived, he would have been the heir to the German aristocracy. And so somebody wanted to kill him off or get rid of him or, you know. So it's a man in the iron mask type situation. 
somebody did DNA tests off of the ancestors of that particular royal bloodline and tested it against, I think, in one instance, the blood from the shirt that was taken off of his body when he died. And another, I think, was maybe taken directly from his corpse after maybe his corpse had been uh, exhumed. Uh, Either way, it was mitochondrial DNA. Uh, The first test was uh, no, he was not directly related. But then the second one said that he may have been related. So, But the story itself just doesn't make any sense. No. Right? If he was uh, a lost heir to a fortune, then surely the person keeping him captive knows this yeah right yeah so why are they keeping him captive versus one just killing him if they don't want him to be the heir or if they're keeping him from being murdered why are you raising him like that surely you could raise him in secret but still give him like an education and help him to be able to like take over yeah like if he has been living in exclusion since birth how does he know that he is a royal heir? He doesn't. Like, if you're a baby, you only know what other people tell you. So you could just whisk him off to the country somewhere in an undisclosed location and be like, your name is Jim. You are Jim the farm boy. A simple farm boy. You enjoy walking in the hills and yogurt. And that's all you like because you're definitely not a member of the royal family, Jim. And and he's not going to question that. Why would you? My money is on him essentially being like a liar, but like almost to a, like a pathological liar. Mm. Okay. Just a teller of tall tales. I don't know what kind of circumstances he was in prior to showing up in Nuremberg. But I think by the time he landed up in Nuremberg, he was just kind of hitting a stride in terms of his storytelling and so maybe he went into that place thinking that he was going to convince other people that he was a feral child. Because people have heard stories about, for example, Victor of Aveyron or Peter the Wild Boy, both of whom we covered in the last episode. So, you know, people know that this is a thing. And maybe he's just building off of that. And I think he may have also been suffering from Chausen syndrome. Mm-hmm. Um, so basically where you just hurt yourself... Uh, or injure yourself for attention. Attention, And so I think a couple of these quote-unquote attacks by a mystery man were just self-inflicted, and the last one was unfortunately fatal. Yeah, I think people might know Munchausen by proxy more than actual Munchausen syndrome, Mm -hmm. which is when... Like a parent keeps a child sick in order, or keeps taking him to the hospital in order to get like benefit somehow. Oh, Alicia, what a tremendous segue into our next story. Uh, so we did say we were going to give you guys a heads up. The next couple of case studies are going to be pretty dark. There are going to be quite a few trigger warnings here. Suffice it to say, we're going to be talking about kids being really badly abused and the consequences of that. So if that's not your kind of thing, uh, you might want to duck out just now and uh, tune in later in the podcast. Yeah, it's I think it is worthwhile to know about, but we're hopefully going to cover it in a sensitive way and not in a torture porny kind of way. Yeah. Well, should we take a quick break before we get into it? Sure thing. We will catch you in a bit.
welcome back, guys. Hello again. So, although the stories that we've presented thus far have been far from the fanciful images depicted in Jungle Book and Peter Pan, the story of Jeannie Wildly is about as far as you can get from a fairy tale. In 1970, the staff of a Los Angeles welfare office were presented with a mother and child. The child looked to be around seven or eight years old, surely no more than ten. She looked gaunt and thin. She moved around with a strange, stooped gait. Her hands held limply in front of her body. People would later comment that she resembled a rabbit. The child in question was Jeannie Wiley. So have you heard of Jeannie Wiley before this? I don't think so, no. But I think when we decided that we were going to do an episode on feral children, this was like the first story that popped up. Uh, And it was strange for me because when I thought we were going to be talking about feral children, I was picturing kids raised by dogs, kids raised by bears, and this is not that. Yeah, absolutely not. Had you heard about this story? I heard either about this story or something like it in my communications class. So I, I have a degree in communications, and in that degree we were talking about how language affects the brain, which is something that we'll talk about later. And Jeannie Wiley was a case study. Yeah, and I mean, it's going to become apparent why pretty, pretty quickly. Uh, So Jeannie, which was not her real name, wasn't seven or eight years old. She was actually closer to 13. Her slight figure was the result of malnourishment. These aspects of her appearance and everything else about her unusual physical appearance were all the result of years and years of intentional systematic abuse and neglect, which is astonishing in both its nature and duration. Jeannie was the daughter of Clark and Irene Wiley. She was born in 1953, but she was not the first Wiley child. Jeannie had an older brother, John. He had been brutalized from a young age by Clark. Clark's mother was killed by a drunk driver while she and John were out for a walk. He blamed John, perhaps for distracting his mother's attention from the road. He was six at the time of her death. Jeannie and John had two other siblings who had died in infancy, a brother and sister who both died at a very young age. One died from a congenital birth defect, the other died from pneumonia, possibly as a result from exposure after being stuffed in a desk drawer in a garage by Clark. So, all around, not a great guy. No, and I think it's pretty clear that Clark had his own fair share of mental health issues. He also had an unusually close relationship with his mother. So, what happened to his first two children predates the death of his mum. But it seems that when that happened, he really went off the deep end. So from what I remember from the documentaries that we were watching, he had a bad relationship with his mother when he was younger. Mm-hmm. And then they reconnected much later in life. And mm-hmm. right when she was kind of entering his life again in a positive way, she was killed by a car. Um, and then he blamed his son after that. And... I don't know, man. When people deal with these kind of tragedies, they just look all around them for other people to blame. But it's hard to sympathize with somebody who looks at a child, let alone their own child, as the the source of that pain. Clark's wife, Irene Wiley, was believed to have had some form of mental disability. 
She also suffered from partial blindness, which worsened over time. She was the subject of frequent beatings from Clark, as were all of the family. You can't really understand why what happened to Jeannie happened without focusing on Clark himself. He was, by all accounts, a strange and abusive individual. By his own admission, he didn't care for children and hated noise. And this is pure speculation on my part, but I think he may have been a sufferer of misophonia. Have you ever heard of misophonia before? No, but it has phonia in there, so maybe he has a fear of noise? Uh, or a cl- hatred of noise? Okay, close. I think he has kind of like a an enhanced version of what I have. You know when I get like really irrationally upset by like the signs of neighbours or like signs of construction outside or things like that? Because I just, I then find it impossible to like focus on anything else. Have I noticed that? Never. I don't, okay, I know this is surprising information, but I don't like distracting noises from outside. Uh, but, but he apparently hated any noise of any kind. Uh, and he was especially close to his mother, as we said earlier, and after her death and the lack of prosecution against the teen driver responsible, he seems to have truly gone off the deep end. So not only does he blame his six-year-old son, the drunk driver was a teenager, so even more negative connotations that have to do with children. Yeah, or you could even see that as his blame placed on the outside world, because ultimately, like, the failure to prosecute that kid could be seen as, like, a failure on the part of society, and so you, you would try and distance yourself from, for example, social workers or uh, public officials. Uh, so Clark moved the family into his mother's house in Temple City, California. Oh, boy. <laughs> yeah, in the same fashion as Ed Gein, he would not allow the family to enter his mother's room and left it in memorial to her. Instead, the family slept in separate rooms of the house. He forced Irene to sleep on a dining room chair, and he had a room purposely furnished for Jeannie. Can you imagine, like, even spending a night sleeping on a dining room chair? So I have. Everybody's had those times when they, you know, have nowhere to sleep, or they're crashing at some... You're a student, you're at a wild party, yeah. Or, you know, you're poor, whatever it is. Um... So I've I've slept on like straight back dining room chairs before and it is incredibly uncomfortable and honestly more uncomfortable than just sleeping on the floor. Oh yeah. Like if just sleep on the floor with like some blankets. Yeah, just sleep on the floor or just just leave your husband who clearly is a horrible individual like just let's, either of those two things. Let's not blame Irene here because she obviously has she needs help from somebody, yeah. right? She is being abused by her husband, and she has probably has mental health problems. I, I think that was alluded to that she maybe had, like, maybe a lower IQ or something along those lines at, at the time when she met Clark. So I guess another way of looking at it is, was Clark looking for, like, a vulnerable individual that he could control? Probably. Yeah. He probably didn't like women anyway because of his previous experiences with his mother. And she, when they first met, she could only see out of one eye. And then as he beat her, like, she started to lose her vision in the other eye. Mm -hmm. And so she could only see just a tiny bit. So, of course, she's relying on other people. And also... We know that victims of abuse have incredible difficulty leaving their partner, even when there aren't children involved. 
Yeah, and if it seems like we're going into a lot of detail here in terms of personal responsibility or potential culpability, that is real important as as we're going throughout this story. Let's talk about this room that he had made for Jeannie. The room had no toys, no teddies. It had no wind-up mobile or cartoon stencils on the walls. The room didn't have very much of anything, bar two items of furniture. A crib with a chicken wire lid and a potty chair with straps for the arms and legs. It was in or on these two devices that Jeannie would spend 24 hours a day for the next 11 years in a room where all natural light had been blocked from view. If you wanted to write a guide for how to not only stymie a child's development, but all but ensure that their chances of leading a normal life as a fully functioning human being were destroyed, this would be it. Jeannie was never toilet trained and was simply allowed to urinate and defecate into the chair where she was strapped into throughout her waking hours. As a result, she was fully incontinent. She was never fully allowed to eat solid foods, instead being fed on a diet of mashed up bananas and eggs and assorted baby foods. She hadn't learned how to chew fully, and when she was finally presented to social workers, she had both her baby and adult teeth. That's, I, I know, like, it's not her fault, but that is just terrifying. Like, two rows of teeth in a child? Yeah. Well, I didn't even know that that was possible. When I was younger, I had like a baby tooth that wouldn't fall out. And I hated like pulling my teeth out. Mm-hmm. And so for like about like a month, I had a baby tooth and like an adult tooth at the same time. Mm-hmm. And it took forever for like that baby tooth to fall out. But like it felt so weird in my mouth, mm-hmm. like to have like the double row of teeth. Yeah, and like of a course, shark or something. Yeah, it. I mean, there's a reason that typically you don't see this kind of thing in nature, and it's because people aren't being force-fed on semi-solid uh, foodstuffs. Jeannie wasn't allowed to walk or move around the room, and being strapped to a chair constantly meant her limbs developed at an uncomfortable angle. As if being raised in a windowless cell, unable to focus on anything a few meters away from your face was not enough to shut down her cognitive development. The Clarks never spoke to or around Jeannie. John and Irene were forbidden for talking to her. Clark himself would not only not talk to his daughter, but would reportedly hiss like a cat or bark like a dog at her. And whenever Jeannie would cry or make a noise, he would beat her with a piece of wood. Like a plank of wood. And I remember in one of the documentaries we were uh, watching, or uh, one of the things we were reading, basically, John was forbidden to talk to or play with his sister. Um, and as he got older, Clark would bring him into the room to beat Jeannie. Yeah. Part of John's job was to feed Jeannie, I think. And yeah. then he would also be brought in to beat her. I think this is something that you see in cycles of abuse where people have witnessed abuse from a young age and although they are not the direct target of abuse, they are then kind of folded into it somehow. They're made an accomplice. My thinking is that 
whether conscious or subconscious, you perceive that growing individual as a potential future threat. Because if they grow up and they see their younger sister as a victim, and if they see you as the villain, then they're going to get big enough and tough enough to to act against you or to go and tell the police or go and tell a teacher, etc. But if you make them take part in the abuse, well, you can't go to the police because you're as bad as I am. Sure, it's the same way like anytime you've ever had that um, situation where somebody makes like a really racist joke or like a crude joke and it's just you and them and you just don't laugh mm-hmm. and you're like, man, that's not funny. I'm, I'm not about that. Suddenly it feels like the power balance has shifted. They were in control of the situation and you've taken that control from them by telling them that they're wrong. Yeah. And that's the same kind of situation that Clark would be in if John and Irene were to be like, no, this is wrong. That's why he has folded him into this abuse. Sure. Because he doesn't want any opposition. Yeah, and he's he's just firmer, further normalizing that behavior, which, I mean, from a young age, yes, you're going out into the outside world. So John, unlike his sister, was attending school. And so he's going to school every day and he's seeing other children and he's seeing other adults. And he was explicitly told... If you tell anyone, you like, I'm gonna, I'm gonna hurt you, and I'm gonna hurt your sister, right? So his father knows that he's being exposed to people in the outside world. He knows what he's doing is wrong. He knows it's wrong enough to to warn his son, like, you can't talk to anyone else about this. And I guess there must be something going on in that child's head where you're like, well, what happens at home is that we've got the secret room where we keep my younger sister and and we do things to my younger sister. But in the outside world, people don't do that to their brothers and sisters. And I guess you, you just have to kind of further normalize that behavior before before they jump off the wagon. Maybe it's pointless to even try to fathom Clark Wiley's rationale and the pain and dehumanization that he inflicted upon Jeannie and the rest of his family. In later reports, he said he suspected her of being mentally disabled. Maybe like his first child and like some other feral children cases, he was trying to leave Jeannie to the elements and let nature take its course. Only it didn't. Jeannie wanted to live. Clark didn't want her to, but she did. And what this led to was a decade-long ordeal. Jeannie did not have an easy time of it after her mother went to the authorities. She was shuttled between foster homes, and in some reports she was not treated well by her foster families. She was eventually released under the care of her mother, and to this day lives as a ward of the state of California. It would appear that subsequent attempts by well-meaning researchers and social workers to get in contact with her have been stopped. Perhaps, ultimately, this is for the best. So, I think the ultimate failure beyond, like, what Clark did to Jeannie is the failure of the system to help her in any way because mm-hmm. basically they kind of they took her to uh the hospital mm-hmm. and then they took her like kind of threw doctors at her and, and psychiatrists at her and then they just shuffled her through a series of foster homes and i get that not very many people in the entire world would be able to deal with a case like this especially not in what the the 50s uh so this would have been in the 70s it was 1970 that she uh that she was released for want of a better word yeah so i don't think that there would have been people able to deal with this but i do think that 
if she had any chance, it would have been in that time period, that time right after she had been found. Can she have a stable and safe place? Can she be taught in a, a loving and caring way? Can she be given some kind of consistency as mm -hmm. well and be given uh, one group of people that can look after her uh, over a long period of time? I mean, we'll never know what kind of progress she could have made as an adult. We, we, we don't, to this day, really know what she's like as a fully grown woman. So she would now be in her... I think she's in her 60s. Yeah. And again, maybe that's for the best. But... Yeah. I mean, I think part of the problem... <laughs> Let's be honest, the reason why we're covering these cases is because they have a bit of the, like, rubberneck effect, or people, oh, yeah. people are always like, well, well, what happened after? You know, like, give me the gory details. Tell me about what happened to this kid. And, like, the truth is that afterwards, the road to recovery is really long, and often there isn't a recovery. Sure. I mean, if she'd been allowed to naturally develop, uh, from the age that she was shut into that room, that would have taken around about 11 or 12 years for for her to be where an average 13-year-old would have otherwise been. And, and that's with nature kind of assisting you along the way to try and reproduce that artificially at a later point in life. If it's not impossible, then certainly it's, you know, it's, it's going to take a huge amount of effort and time. Would would you would you like a joke? Would you like a little palate cleanser after that? I don't know. Uh, okay, I've got one. Um, I've got a knock knock joke. Okay. Uh, but you've got to start me off. No. Because <laughs> <laughs> I've done that joke to you. Damn it. <laughs> uh, well, I have no more jokes. Should we just do it for the listener? You do it because it was my joke. Uh, I've got a knock knock joke, but you got to start me off. Okay, knock knock. Who's there? Ah! <laughs> do it to your friends because it's funny, but only do it one time and remember which friend you've done it to because yeah. otherwise they'll make a fool of you on your podcast. Haha. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so yeah, that's the story of Jeannie Wiley. Uh, okay, well, would you like to tell us about our next case study? So the next case that we're covering is the story of Danielle or the girl in the window. For this story, one, because we don't have a lot of information about her confinement, and two, because I think something that the story about Jeannie Wiley doesn't focus on is her recovery and what happens to her after. So for the story about Danielle, I'd like to focus more on what happened after her horrific abuse. So my main source in this story is Lane DeGregory's amazing 2007 article about Danielle titled The Girl in the Window that won a Pulitzer Prize in 2009. And then she later followed up on this story in 2017. It's definitely worth a read. It's tough to get through at times, but is really well written. Danielle was found in 2005 by police officers who had been called in on a case of child abuse. Upon walking into the small house in Plant City, Florida, Detective Hulse said, I've been in rooms with bodies rotting there for a week, and it never stunk that bad. Can I just ask, because your mom obviously lived in Palm City, Florida, uh, where is Plant City, Florida in relation to Palm City, Florida? I, I couldn't tell you. So it's not like they're right next to each other, and they're just doing, like, twinsies names. No, there's a lot of city names. Okay. Yeah. All right. 
the rest of this, there's a lot of little bits in the in the rest of the story which make me think of Florida, and that makes it sound like our time in Florida was really horrible and grimy, but but it's not. I mean, only you have made that connection. Yes. But... Well, I'm sorry. Maybe it's because I haven't been to as many different parts of the U.S., um, so that kind of stands out in my mind. Uh, but uh, I mean, I just I I wanted to be clear that your mum's house was a l- infinitely cleaner than what you're about to talk about. I feel like there's been a lot of attacks on Okay, I'm sorry. This <laughs> is not lately You know and... what? Uh, I've dug myself a hole. I think you should carry on with the story. I will. I'm going to sit here quietly Rude. and listen. Okay. Well, uh it smells god awful in this house. Not your mom's house. He said every step was accompanied by the sound of crunching cockroaches. The bugs were in the light fixtures and even in the freezer. The floor was covered with animal excrement and urine. In a dark room in the back, Holst found a girl, six or seven, curled up on a mattress. She was covered in bug bites. Her hair was infested with lice. She wore a bulging diaper. And behind her in the room, with a broken window, was four feet of used diapers. Hull said he picked her up and she yelped like a lamb, but didn't struggle. Her full diaper leaked down the detective's leg. What's your name, honey? he asked. Her name was, of course, Danielle, and her mother screamed at the officers for them to not take her baby. But she was taken, straight to the hospital, where they found that the little girl had nothing amiss mentally. No autism or ailments like cerebral palsy or muscular dystrophy, Instead, she had what the doctors called environmental autism. Danielle didn't react to heat or cold, not even to pain. When a nurse held her hands, she would walk sideways on her toes, but could not talk or swallow food. Chew food. Sorry, that's supposed to be chew. It's believed that she had been fed from a bottle her entire life. Do you have even a crumb of sympathy if the police show up at your door and they take away your child, now it, it is your flesh and blood, right? That is your daughter. But you have clearly done beyond a terrible job of raising that child. A- any sympathy whatsoever for the mom? I do have a little tiny bit of sympathy, and that's because. And part of the background that De Gregory does, she has found out that the mother was determined to have an IQ of around 50. Okay. So, average IQ is 100. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, like, Mensa-level IQ is, what, 150 or above, like, 150? You said that as though I'm a member of Mensa. Various different conversations on, that, on this podcast have proven that I am not. But go on. Well, um, so yeah, to her to be, like, not just under average IQ level, but her brain functionality is not great. So, well under, we're not arguing that she, therefore, should not be allowed to have kids, but probably needs uh, more support than the average parent. Yes, uh, she she needed more support, and she also, like, let's be honest, the US is not known for their social services. What? Um, and she needed help. Mm-hmm. Um, for various different reasons, but she, Danielle wasn't her only daughter, mm-hmm. so she, or not her only child, 
Okay. So she she also had a son, and the son had a cognitive disability, and she would often leave Danielle with her son, who is about like five or six years older than Danielle, for like full shifts of work. She would go work at Publix, which is like a grocery store in Florida. See, this is the part that reminds me of Florida, because we don't have Publix in the UK, and I believe it's 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 not solely in Florida, but there's a lot of them in Florida. Yeah, it's like a southern kind of grocery store chain, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's mainly in Florida. But anyway, that's not what this podcast is about. Um, so she would leave De- Danielle with her brother for an entire shift of work. And then she would also leave Danielle there like when she went out to like bingo nights and things like that. Which is like... How, uh, not necessarily the way that, like, my whole family was raised, but, like, definitely, uh, in our community, there are plenty of families that were raised that way. I think in the old days, it would be called making your children more responsible, but nowadays it's termed child abuse. Well, I mean, I have an older brother. He's five years older than me. Hi, Ross. Hello. And he was my de facto babysitter for a lot of a lot of my youth. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't think there's anything wrong with that, except the fact that he had to be a babysitter. That sucks for you. Sorry. But the fact, I guess the, the real issue here is that one, the brother was not very old. Mm-hmm. Um, and two, he had a cognitive disability. Yeah. So how how is he supposed to care for a baby? You You need someone else to step in. But it sounds like there weren't a lot of options there. Well, we'll see, because multiple times uh, social services were called to report the abuse and the children being left alone. The mother was even offered free childcare by investigators, but refused. Oh, I stand corrected. Yeah, and I don't really know what the reason is. It could be that, like, they're offering her free childcare if she does, like, X, Y, and Z. Mm-hmm. You know, there's always some kind of, like, strings attached, usually, with these sorts of things, especially in the U.S. It's like, well, you have to, like, be done with work at this time, or you have to have, like, these amount of check-ins with, like, social services. I'm not saying that's bad, but I'm saying that maybe she viewed that as, like, I, I can't do that. That's impossible for me to do. Would it be correct to say as well, with certain demographics and certain parts of the U.S., that those groups of people are inherently more suspicious of government or state-run organizations, like social social outreach programs, I guess? Yes, yeah, I think especially, like, rural Florida. Ah, yes. Floridians. Indeed. Um, I don't want to... Um... <laughs> It's fine. It's fine. We can skate past this. Yeah, I think, you know, the state has not always been great to people. So why would you trust them? Yeah. I mean, especially if the consequences of trusting the state are that your children are taken away from you. Sure. Sure. But basically what I want to say is that her mom wasn't necessarily the best equipped to care for her. She didn't have any cognitive disabilities, but... They were basically created for her. Mm-hmm. Um, so after Danielle was found, she was taken to a group home in foster care, but care workers knew that she would be better off with parents, and so she was put up for adoption. Enter Bernie and Diane Lero, who took on the monumental task of being Danielle's parents. And really, Bernie is the true hero throughout her story. Mm. So they adopted the little girl when she was eight. 
She would scream and have temper tantrums, bite her own hands, tiptoe to the fridge in the middle of the night just to look at the food to make sure it was still there. That's what her dad thinks. I do that sometimes. You you will hear me get up in the middle of the night, tiptoe to the fridge, look inside, just make a noise, and then walk back out. Yes, but you're not doing it because you were basically starved as a child. No. Quite the opposite, <laughs> yeah. in fact. Yeah. So Bernie says that she would, like, go to the fridge and pull out the freezer drawer so that she could kind of stand on, like, the frozen vegetables so mm-hmm. she could see into the fridge. She would never take anything. She would just look at the food and see that it was there, then close everything back up and, like, go back to her room. Doesn't paint a great picture of the environment that she Mm-mm. that she came from, huh? She would also do this thing where... She let she would like pull her sock halfway off her foot and just kind of like bat at it, kind of like the way like infants like do with like mobiles or mobiles. Yeah. Um. But she's basically creating her own. She's just, like playing with her sock. Sure. But Bernie and Diane taught her to eat, to go to the bathroom because remember she had only been raised with diapers. She had never been potty trained. Oh God. Um. They took her to multiple therapists and enrolled her in classes and speech therapy. She couldn't speak, but her tantrums declined, and she loved to look out the window and watch the sunset before bedtime. Her dad said that was one of her favorite things, is sometimes he would, like, lift her up so that she could look out the window. Damn it, Palmer. (sighs) Yeah. Okay. All right. But let's be honest, it's really hard to be a parent of a special needs child. Diane and Bernie divorced three years after adopting Danny, which is what they called her. They basically, instead of calling her Danielle, they shortened her name to Danny. Um, things became a lot harder for Bernie after that, who was her sole caretaker, especially after she entered puberty. She was taller than him now at 17 years old, and she would often... She started peeing herself again. She started, like, having more tantrums. Mm-hmm. And now people would call the police on him when they when he tried to get her into the car or took her to the bathroom because she can't go by herself. Yeah. And she, she's a 17-year-old woman. So she has also gained a lot of weight at this point because she would just kind of eat anything in sight. Sure. And... She will also steal food from other people's plates. Like, if they took her to McDonald's, she would take, like, the chicken nuggets from other people's plates. Right. And Danielle was... Or not Danielle, sorry. Uh, Diane, her adopted mother, was trying to tell herself, like, you know, like, at least she's eating by herself. Mm-hmm. She may be stealing food from other people, but at least she's eating. And there were times when Diane would take her to, like, horseback riding kind of classes, like, therapeutic classes, and... This other mother of a special needs child looked at her and was like, you're so lucky. And she was like, what, what do you mean? And she's like, well, you know, she can walk. You know, she can, she can do things on her own. Yeah. Which kind of, to me, being the parent of a child with additional support needs is just one of the toughest jobs in the entire world. I guess before we judge Diane too harshly for bailing on her I don't, husband and Danny. I don't judge her at all yeah. for that. She also, they had another kid. So I believe Diane had two sons with uh, someone before she met Bernie. And then her and Bernie had a son. And he was about, he was older than Danny when they adopted her. So he was like her big brother. And 
it was so, it's so sad reading any of these stories because, like, the little boy is talking about how, you know, Danny's different, but he's doing his best. And, you know, she still likes, like, it's, it's great because he has someone who wants to have fun with him now. She can't walk, but he will drive her. Like, he had, like, a little Jeep, mm-hmm. you know, one of those little motorized Jeeps, and he would drive her around, um, like, their neighborhood with that. And there is, like a, like, a photo of the two of them as kids. And it is just like, it's so sweet. Like she's, she's smiling and laughing and he's like smiling as he's driving his little Jeep. But he also had to give up, like he, he had to give up his room so that she could be closer to the parents. So he lived in like the washer dryer, like the laundry room on like a mattress, like a pullout bed down there. Mm-hmm. He's also like goes from being basically an only child to like he said that he gave her all his toys so that she because she had never had anything to play with before so he wanted her to play with them but like at what cost does he lo- he has to lose his childhood in order to help her yeah so i don't judge diane for leaving because they say that about 90% of parents with ch- like children with severe dis- disabilities get divorced and i can understand why yeah. Especially when you're in a place like the US and you have little to no support from the government and so you're paying for everything out of pocket. The medical bills alone are extortionate and then you have to think of other things like specialized therapy and childcare needs, so well, uh yeah. <laughs> okay. So, um Bernie is obviously having trouble with her as she is growing older and he finally makes a really difficult decision to take her to a group home. Because at 18, she's eligible for Medicare. So now he doesn't have to... He he had to take in, like, foster children in order to help pay for everything. Mm-hmm. He, he I think he owned, like, a farm. They moved out of Florida at this point. I think they moved up to Georgia or Tennessee. And he had a farm, and he took kids onto this farm in order to, like, help them, but also help pay for everything. So he could. He decided he could no longer do it, and it would be best for her if uh, he put her into this group home, which is I've done some research on the group home, and it's it's actually a really nice place. They go like every weekend. They go somewhere, or do something to like museums or farmers markets or right. you know some sort of outing. He says he visits her often, and she even lets the aide brush her hair, which is something that she never even let him do. Um, and she no longer steals food from the residents' plates. He says he doesn't regret becoming her father, and even knowing that she would never speak, never live on her own, or have her own family, Bernie says that he would do it again. I guess the important thing here is to, if you're trying to quantify success in terms of her development, rather than grading her against other teens or young women or or whatever, whatever the average is that you try and assess her based on how far she's come. Yeah, and I think that's what the article does a good job of showing. You can tell that in the beginning, Bernie and Diane had really high expectations from what they hoped she would achieve. They hoped that one day she would have her own family. They hoped that, you know, she would be able to live on her own. Those kind of things weren't possible for Danielle because of her early abuse. But the fact that she can do things like not steal food from other people, she can go to the bathroom by herself. You know, she, there's, um... There's a snapshot in the article where Bernie comes for her birthday and takes her out to, he t- he likes to take her to thrift stores for her birthday shopping because she can play with all the toys there. 
to decide what she wants because if you go to a big box store, obviously you can't play with the toys. Yeah. So he takes her to to the thrift store and she sits there for like an hour playing with all the toys. And the one that um, she really loves is like one of those like Fisher Price like helicopters where you like press buttons and it's like up, up and away. Um. So yeah, it's um, it's amazing the progress that she made. But heartbreaking to know that that happened at all. Yeah. So, why can't people like Danielle or people like Jeannie Wiley, why can't they just do a Casper Hauser and learn how to become fully functioning individuals? We're going to be talking about that uh, as well as a little bit of history after the break. Uh, let's go. Let's go have a little cry. Yeah. And, yeah, and we'll speak to you again shortly. Welcome back, everybody. I hey. hope you didn't cry too hard during the break. Yeah. Um, now that we've got all of the really grim stuff out of the way, I hope it's been a cathartic experience for everybody. Why don't we talk about why brains can't just fully develop themselves after they've been put through severe trauma? Uh, let's go back in time a little bit and let's talk about a bizarre experiment by a Scottish king. For such a tiny island, Inchkeith has a surprisingly storied history. This speck of land that lies in the Firth of Forth, separating Edinburgh from Fife, at one point had a working lighthouse, and was used as a military base to protect the nation's capital. It has also been used as a quarantine area for sufferers of syphilis and the plague. However, in 1493, it was used by the then King James IV of Scotland for a different form of isolation experiment. Uh, so this story's uh, taking place in Edinburgh. You, you've got some fond memories of Edinburgh, right? I mean, I really enjoyed going to Edinburgh. Mm-hmm. Um, I That was my first time in Scotland, and we went for Christmas. It is a beautiful city. I mean, mm. I, I've been to London, which I hated. Um, and I've been to, I want to say Canterbury. Mm-hmm. I'm in the south, and that was just beautiful and lovely. But Edinburgh has like, because we went at Christmas time, so there was like skate rinks and like the German Christmas market, all things that I never had. Mm-hmm. Um, and it it has like a very fairy tale quality to it. There are parts where you like walk over a bridge, and there's like more city underneath you. Yeah. Almost like Studio Ghibli, like, where's all the city coming from? Edinburgh is really built upon itself. It it really is an ancient medieval place, as, as this story talks about a little bit. And as such, rather than a lot of new proposed cities, it's kind of just a mishmash of different different layers, different Very eras. Yeah, and, and that's what I kind of love about it. So, back in the 1400s. King James was fascinated by science. He supposedly studied dentistry and surgery, or what passed for these at the time, and funded alchemists and apothecaries. 
He was also a polyglot, apparently being fluent in Latin, French, Italian, Spanish, and Flemish, as well as being the last Scottish monarch to be fluent in Gaelic. Combined interests led him to conceiving a bizarre experiment. Uh, So he, I guess when you're a monarch, you're just raised from birth to maybe to be a diplomat. Yeah, I think, I mean, for a lot of royalty, your first language, even if like like Russian royalty, their first language was usually French. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. And that's what they spoke to each other in. But they also had to know, obviously, Russian and several other languages. So I think that's just part and parcel to being a monarch or to being like aristocracy one, you have a lot of time on your hands because you're not plowing the fields or doing all those other horrific laboring tasks. Yes, horrible. Who would want that? And if you're enjoying all this language talk and the talk of a potential universal language, you go back a couple of episodes and check out our episode E is for Esperanto. It's a thrill ride. Plug! <laughs> I said that sarcastically, but I actually thought it was quite good. So, uh, following in the footsteps of the Egyptian pharaoh Pasmatic I, it's probably how you say that. Sure. Yeah. And Holy Roman Emperor Frederick II, King James apparently set up his own language deprivation study. His goal, according to writer Paul Anthony Jones, was to, quote, see what language, if any, the children acquired. With no other linguistic input, he believed that this language, whatever it might be, must surely be the innate, God-given language of mankind. Okay, so to us this sounds real dumb. Like, obviously, if you don't speak at all to a kid, they're not going to learn anything. But to these people, (laughs) I'd say these people, but to, to people in the past, you have to first think that, like, the Bible is the foundation of everything right? And part of the Bible is the story of Babylon. Mm-hmm. And like the Tower of Babylon and all these... The, the Tower of Babel, right? Sorry, the tar- Tower of Babel. <laughs> oh, God. And You're a terrible Christian. It's a good thing I'm not. Hey! Um, so all these people had a universal language first, right? And then God didn't like that they were getting too close to him, so he broke them all up into different languages. So maybe... If you didn't teach a kid anything, then they would have this universal language. Yes, absolutely. It's like when you, uh, I I guess it's like being restored to factory settings, right? Mm. Like if I just went onto my laptop and then just restored it to factory settings, it would be like, what? what language what language do you want and that's uh so king james thinks that you can essentially do that with a child like if you uh push your fingers into like uh like its belly button and its ear at the same time then like it will come out with the language of god so let's see if that worked uh the king ordered that two infants be sequestered to the isle of inchkeith under the care of a deaf and dumb nursemaid there under her care but deprived of any form of language the children were to be raised until they were old enough to talk. Writing in the 16th century, in his History and Chronicles of Scotland, historian Robert Lindsay of Pitscotty reported, quote, The king also caused to take one deaf woman and put her in Inchkeith and give her two bairns with her and furnish in all her uh, necessary things pertaining to their nourishment, desiring hereby to know what languages they had when they came to age of perfect speech. Some say they could speak Hebrew, but for my part, I know not but from other people's reports. 
you've heard the term bairns before, haven't you? Of course. Yes. Uh, when you probably from my mum the first time, right? Bairns, quines. Uh, yes. Quine um, uh, is a a lady, a, a, a young girl. girl. Yeah. Usually, like a young single girl comes from queen, I believe. Mm-hmm. Um, loons. Loons is yeah. a young boy. Yeah. And you've got your so bairns are just your babies, just your babies. Yeah. So did the children emerge speaking the language of God, which was coincidentally considered at the time to be Hebrew? In the words of the writer Sir Walter Scott, voicing his opinions of the tale many centuries later, quote, it is more likely that they would scream like their dumb nurse, or bleat like the goats and sheep on the island. And I know this quote isn't meant to be funny, but I, I <laughs> love I love the idea of like the king being rowed over. He's just got like a little ferryman and he rows over to Inchkeith and he's like, Well, what word? And these two kids just going, And then King James is like, hmm, writing it down in note his notepad. Experiment successful. <laughs> okay, bye-bye. And then he just leaves them there. Like, you know, I, I do think it sounded like the Jews. Yes. Probably because they murdered them all. Ah, uh, yes, the screaming Jews of southern Bethlehem. Hmm, quite. Which, by the way, uh, Hebrew wasn't, like, a fully, like, spoken language until basically Israel was created. It It used to be a spoken language, and then it just became, like, a prayer language. So this is what I'm saying, like, if you, so if instead of, like, a deaf and dumb nursemaid, the kids were just left with, like, an orangutan, and then King James came back and he was like, okay, you two, what do you have to say for yourselves? And they're like, <laughs> He's like, hmm, Hebrew. Yes, <laughs> sounds like Hebrew to me. Um, so, I don't, Alicia, do you, do you think that it was a successful experiment? Yeah, he... You didn't see him write the huge check mark in his notebook. <laughs> Done. Let me check my various other isolated islands where I have other children sequestered in other weird experiments. Yeah, okay, so suffice it to say, the kids weren't speaking the language of God, and um, there, there's a reason for that. And there's a reason why we shouldn't uh, experiment on humans like that. Uh, yeah, well, it's massively cruel, and, uh, you know, potentially you know, basically alters your life permanently, um, potentially in destructive manners. Should we talk about, I guess... Yeah, I'd like to talk about how your brain and language, like, alters your brain. Yeah. Um. So it used to be, like, a, a really popular theory that the language that you learn controls the way that you think. Mm. That's kind of fallen out of favor a lot, but I think it's coming back as a theory. I do think that as an English teacher in a foreign country, I, I can see some parts of this. Not necessarily the language itself, but how people learn their language. So, for example, in China, students aren't really taught like creative thinking. And a big part of this, I think, is because the language itself, you just have to memorize. You need to memorize characters. And so a lot of school is stand up, say the word, sit down. My issue is with like the schools that I went into, like elementary schools, where the way the language was taught, mm -hmm. which was stand up, repeat after me, sit down. And they would do the same thing for English. So the students aren't ever learning how to be creative with a language. Yeah. And I think that 
in itself functions the way that you think more than your actual language does. Although one could argue that because it takes so much longer to learn than many other modern languages, that so much more of your time that would otherwise be committed to creative or constructive lessons has to be dedicated to just rote memorization. That's, I guess, what I was trying to get at, is that the language itself is very difficult, which means that you have to do more memorizing, and that in itself kind of leads your brain in a certain way. I'm not saying that all people think, who speak Mandarins think a certain way, but just that sometimes the fundamentals. Also, something I've always been interested in, but have never been able to get a straight answer regarding, is if you learn language via a pictographic language, a, a pictographic set of characters rather than uh, than an alphabet. Does that then change the way that you think about language? Like, do you associate language more with images than you do with sounds? If you have any insight you'd like to share with us, please do. As always, we are on uh, ETRH the pod on all social media, as well as ETRH the pod at gmail.com. So despite what I just said, uh, that whole thing about language shaping the brain, that has fallen out of favor. However, people do think that the more languages you learn, the quote-unquote bigger your brain gets, mm. right? So your brain... Big and juicy. Yeah. Mm, nom, nom, nom. Your brain is made up of gray and white matter. Gray is more or less responsible for processing information, while the white matter connects different regions of the brain. That's a simplification, but that's what you're getting, because I'm not a neuroscientist. According to the Scientific American, the magazine... Bilingual people have more gray and white matter than monolingual people. What this means is that they can process more irrelevant information and possibly pass off the workload to other portions of the brain, which means that you are able to process more information. So basically, they have a marbled brain, like a good steak. Mm, yes. And um, it means that like, while this matter has been developed in the pursuit of language learning, what it does is it has created more pathways for other information. So presumably, you know, in, in the same way that my dad, I think, started doing the Sudoku and the crossword more regularly a few years back as a way to, like, potentially con combat, uh, you know, early onset dementia, uh, which I, incidentally, like, I don't, I don't think is an issue. But you you could also potentially do that by learning a second or third language. Yeah, the, the benefits itself are not, like, only for um, children. It's mm -hmm. not like if you learn a second language when you're a child, this happens and it doesn't happen for anybody else. The benefits of learning a second language beyond just, like, being able to speak multiple languages are found in your brain no matter your age. Mm -hmm. So it's worthwhile. Okay. Okay, so a study done by Boston University looked into all published reports of in individuals not exposed to syntactic language until puberty. So in this study, they looked at two feral children who grew up without hearing any language and eight deaf linguistic isolates who grew up communicating with their families using home sign or kitchen sign a system of gestures which allows them to communicate simple commands but lacks much in the way of syntax. So just to be clear, kitchen sign is not when you communicate with another people by like 
showing them pots and pans and and the kettle and stuff like that uh no no, no. it's not okay uh good catch yeah could you elaborate maybe on what kitchen sign is so basically sign language itself is a fully developed language you can express yourself in ideas you are able to express like uh full sentences and emotions and uh thoughts right whereas home sign or kitchen sign is made up by say you're a family in a really rural area and there's no no services there's no way to to teach you sign language or your child sign language Mm -hmm. so you're just kind of making up a way to communicate with your child and so your commands are not going to be complex they're going to be things like turn on the water take a bath like wash your face because all of a sudden like you your your child is deaf there's no one to teach you asl for example Mm -hmm. and now you have to come up with a second language even though you are not a linguistics expert yes yeah and and you don't know what like what it's like and there's only two of you Mm -hmm. so these were the the basis of this study, which is children who are not exposed to complex language. It's a very simple language. The common thread that they found was that these children could understand and gain new vocabulary, but had trouble understanding syntax and spatial prepositions. So, for example, they couldn't understand prepositions like under the table or over the river. Things like that would be too difficult in their concepts for them. Isolated deaf children, those not raised with like something like ASL or in a community of deaf children, mainly focus on learning vocab with their family. So bread, table, chair, go, take, you know, very simple vocab words like verb, noun kind of thing. But deaf children in a community actually create syntax. By syntax, I don't just mean, like, thoughts. I mean, like, like word structure in a sentence, how you form a sentence. So, in Nicaragua, in the 80s, they opened deaf schools that focused on spoken Spanish and lip reading. It failed miserably because they didn't teach these children how to actually speak. Mm-hmm. However, the deaf children spontaneously generated a new sign language complete with syntax, verb agreement, and other conventions of grammar. So if you have a group of people that don't have a common language and they don't have any way to communicate with themselves, they will create not just a simple language like verb, noun, but a fully functioning language. I think we were talking about this a little bit before the show where we were talking about how does language evolve what is that what does that chicken and egg scenario look like and presumably you just have little bits and pieces of syntax that come about through smaller and uh, smaller smaller groups until they coalesce into something larger right like there, there must be i guess language is often compared to a virus if we use that analogy then there are small mutations that then gather into larger mutations, new strains. We have to think about language as a living creature. It is constantly changing, and a living creature is born, right? So a group of people can create a new language. 
But I think what's important here is that it is spontaneously generated. Nobody gave these kids a place to start. They weren't, like, shown ASL. They weren't taught, like, how to speak with their hands or how to create verbs or anything like that. This is something that they created by themselves. And I think that speaks to how important language and communicating with others is to us. Absolutely. Okay, so children who grow up without language or syntax show cognitive impairment, which could be pre-existing, but is exacerbated by the lack of syntax use in early childhood. Isolates, those children who are brought up without language, show that they have difficulty taking ideas and images and turning them into meaningful thought or wholes. The exposure to an infinite syntactic language has to occur during the period of neuroplasticity, which peaks before the age of 2 and 18, and expires sometime before puberty. So oh, when, sorry, 2 and 8. Yeah, so when we say it expires, neuroplasticity over time, like your brain always has that plasticity, but it doesn't have it in the same amount that it has between the ages of two and eight, right? Yes. So there are certain things that if you miss the window, you will never learn. And that's, they don't know where the window is, but they think that if you don't learn a language before puberty, then you will never learn a language. Mm -hmm. And that's not to say that you can't learn a second language because you basically what you're doing is giving yourself the foundation of thought. And if you don't have that foundation, your brain starts to lose the the ability to learn. Mm-hmm. And, and therefore, you won't be able to acquire anything new. That's not to say that, like, as you get older, you know, you can no longer learn new things. Basically, your brain has a limited amount of time to download the first software it needs. Yes. And if it doesn't get that first software, it can't download anything else. So you can get the patches, the updates, the DLC, but if you don't have the version 1.0, then you are locked out of the game. Mm. And we know that children need toys. They need to be encouraged to play pretend, to draw. They need puzzles and arithmetic exercises. You know, they need a variety of stimuli. And it's really important that that stimuli come in the form of language. So different languages have different focuses, and that has a different effect on how we view the world. These examples are according to a lecture given by Lyra Borotsky. She's a cognitive scientist. So uh, an aboriginal group in Australia called the Kuk Theor, as always, I apologize, Uh, don't have left or right in their language. They orientate themselves based on cardinal directions, north, south, east, west. So it's not your left leg, it's your southwest leg. But as you move, your leg changes into your southeast leg. And the way that you say hello in Kukthayar is that you say, which way are you going? And the answer to that should be north, northeast in the far distance. How about you? So imagine I, as I you're walking around. I don't love this, by the way. <laughs> it seems very nosy. It seems like a group of people who have evolved to just keep tabs on each other. Like, where are you going? Like, the fuck? I don't... Where are you going, buddy? Yeah, but I mean, you could say the same thing. Like, how are you? Well, how... I don't know you. Why are you asking me how I'm feeling? How like, are you, buddy? Yeah, how are you, buddy? What are you trying to figure out my inner workings for? 
in the mainland, of course, like mainland China, we, uh, uh, you don't, you learn ni hao ma as mm. like a way to greet people. But what's more common is like, ni chila ma. Have you eaten? Have you eaten? Which I always find really weird because I'm like, I mean, yeah, when? I mean, yes, breakfast. That was a while ago. Have you eaten? Have, have you eaten, buddy? <laughs> I don't like people or questions or people with questions. Welcome to the podcast. Okay, um, so back to this lecture. Uh, this is a quote from her, by the way. Uh, and the answer should be north, northeast in the far distance. How about you? So imagine you're walking around in your day and every person you greet, you have to report your heading direction. The effect of this is that they orientate themselves quickly and stay orientated. So if I were to ask you to point to southwest right now, could you? Oh, absolutely not. Uh, southwest would be... Uh, okay, well, I just remembered this is an audio format, so let's pretend, it, <laughs> let's pretend that I pointed in the correct direction. Wow, so good! Yeah, right? Incredible. First time. Yeah, well done. Um, Th- these are clearly a, a group of people who... Why are they not all sea captains and pilots? How is the aviation industry not actively recruiting these guys? Well, you do have to think that a, a, a large swath of Australia is desert, right? So you don't have... I mean, I've never been to Australia, but I assume there are not a lot of landmarks. So how... D- depending on where you... I think if you're in the outback... Yeah. Yeah, there are long, long stretches where it is just flatland. So the ability to know which direction you're facing could be life or death yeah presumably during the day it's mostly the direction of the sun the direction the sun is traveling and then nighttime stars i guess potentially i don't know i don't know if it's something like you learn it and you're just like you're able to figure it out so much more quickly than Mm -hmm. other people um I think uh, an example of that is that Russian speakers have to differentiate between light blue, which is, oh boy, Golubboy? Golubboy. 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 And dark blue, which is Sydney. 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 This table is Golubboy. Your trousers are silly. You have silly trousers. Neither of those are true. This table is white. Again, an audio format. They don't know. They no, just, but I really wanted lie. to call just you out on that. To them. <laughs> um, so they don't have a word for just blue. It's always light blue and dark blue. What they found is that Russian speakers were able to faster differentiate colors than non-Russian speakers. What does all this mean and why am I telling you about it in relation to feral children? Is because language shapes so much of who we are and the way that we think. For example, the people, the Cook Theor people, think of time based on the direction that they are looking. For us, time is right to left because that's the direction we read in. But for Arabic, left to right, oh God. Yeah. Left to right is because <laughs> that's the direction we read in. But for Arabic speakers, it's right to left. For Mandarin speakers, you were telling me... I believe for Mandarin speakers, it's top to bottom because the way that you go through the day is like uh, on top of the afternoon or on top of midday, midday, and then under midday. So you are thinking in terms of going from top to bottom. And for the Kukfeor, it's 
um, the direction the sun travels, I believe. So if you're thinking about your past, you would think, like, depending on which way you're facing, your past would be in a different direction. Yeah. You also have cultures for whom whenever I whenever I use body language to indicate that I'm saying something in the past tense to our students, I always, like, point over my shoulder, mm-hmm. right? Which, it's second nature to us. Like, the past is behind you. The future is ahead of you. But to other cultures, that doesn't make sense. To some cultures... The past is in front of you. Because you can see it. Yeah, you can see it really clearly because it's ahead of you. The future is behind you because you can't you can't see what's behind you. So, you know, something that we just take for granted, it, uh, something that's second nature to us is completely baffling to other people. Uh, another example, I have never once taught appearance, hair color, eye mm. color to a group of Chinese students or Taiwanese students and not ask the question, what color are your eyes? And not receive the answer, teacher, they are black. Mm-hmm. Regard- no, I could argue this until I'm blue in the face. I could argue this every single lesson over the course of a year. Like, no, no, they're brown. Like, look really closely. You will see they are brown. And I am not going to get the answer like, teacher, my eyes are black. Her eyes are black. <laughs> they will also um, point to the, like, if... I've come back from vacation and I've been tanning. They will say like, oh, teacher, your skin is black. And because, and that's just like, a whole can yeah, of worms. Yeah, exactly. That's difficult in its own right. But you're also like, do you not see the color brown? Like what? what's the mix up between, I think there's also like um, maybe something with pink and purple. Or maybe I'm just a bad teacher. No, I, I was saying this as well. Quite often I'll... Um... Uh, like straw poll my students like what color is the bag what color uh, is her jacket is it pink or purple and they are adamant that it's one over the other but they seem to like 50% of the time get the two mixed up and and I'm not sure where that comes from it could be a language thing uh, it could it could be simply that we're assigning different words for different colors that that they do differently yeah going back to the appearance thing. When I used to interview students to see what level they would be at when they were entering our school, one of the questions is usually, what do you look like? Chinese students, and specifically I'm talking about uh, my students in China, uh, would always start with, I have big or small eyes. I am tall or short. Um, and like maybe what shape their face is. Mm-hmm. For us, we... We would normally, like, I would normally start with, I have brown hair, um, I have maybe brown eyes, you know, that's what's on all of your ID cards. Yeah. But if you have predominantly Han Chinese or predominantly, like, single you, ethnic... You, yeah, you have essentially, like, a, a more or less homogenous culture mm-hmm. or a, a homogenous uh, group of individuals. Yeah. So... It's not that everybody looks the same, but you define how people look by different parameters. If everybody has, if most people have black hair, then that's not going to be a defining feature for you. For example, in the US, we would probably do hair because we all have different colored hair. But if you live somewhere where everybody has blonde hair, you're probably not going to say, I have blonde hair because everybody does. Yeah. I imagine if you're sat doing an entrance exam at a school in Sweden, 
and you know you're like what do you look like and it's like i am tall i am attractive i have blonde hair and blue eyes and they're like yeah i know but uh you know like i don't know how <laughs> well now i'm just saying that all swedish people look the same and and, and i don't want to go down that road i don't think all people look the same in any ethnicity but i just find it fascinating the different ways that we differentiate ourselves yeah. Um, and fascinating the way that language plays a part in that. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's also important to state that we're not saying that people who have language disorders are less intelligent than people who don't. But I'd like to stress how important it is to give people who are born with cognitive disabilities more access to language learning and other cognitive training. Worldwide, disabled children are less likely to get access to education and healthcare. Even in the semi-secular, semi-scientific West, a disabled child is three to four times more likely to be the victim of violence or abuse than a non-disabled peer. And that's from the article we referenced last part about the tropes of feral children mm-hmm. and how disabled children are so much one more likely to be the basis of a feral child and to just be abused in general those numbers are pretty horrific and basically feed into the self-fulfilling prophecy if you for example are clark wiley and you think your child is disabled and so you treat the child with abuse and treat them as if they are disabled what are you going to get out of that If, on contrast, you are Bernie and you treat Danielle like she has all the possibilities ahead of her, I'm not saying that she's going to suddenly be able to speak or do other things, but she's going to get much farther in life. And I think when we think disabled people lack intelligence and therefore it's a waste of time to send them to school... We need to rethink the ways that we interact with children that have autism, for example. Sorry, it's something that I feel very strongly about. I have had students in the past who their parents deny that they might have additional support needs and and therefore they don't get the extra help that they could need. I've had children with severe difficulties who have done things like throw chairs at me or scream in your face because they don't have the tools to figure out a way to express themselves. And I think it's really important that we give everybody the tool to express themselves. I 100% agree. Um, You can't expect children to excel if they don't have the, the fundamentals, essentially. And that's different for everyone. Not everyone is starting the race from the same point. Some people are starting it from a lot further back. I would like to say that if you think you see an abandoned child or a child or anybody else being abused, please say something. Report and don't just call, but follow up. So many of these children were failed because nobody wanted to break the status quo. Nobody wanted to rock the boat. And there are countless other people and children who need help. So it's one thing to say, like, I called social services, my part is done. They're so swamped. Call them again. Make sure they know that there's an issue. All right. Fun fact? <laughs> uh, yeah, let's let's get weird. So um, 
Here is my weird fact coming at you. Uh, so earlier we were talking about King James IV and his love of wacky experiments, <laughs> including child abuse. Uh, so as I was saying earlier, he funded a number of different alchemists and, and I guess what would be considered scientists at the time. One of the experiments funded by King James IV was the work of the so-called Birdman of Stirling Castle. Is this like some kind of like weird superhero or like, like the Mothman or like... Uh... <laughs> Yeah, neither of those things, and yet better than both of oh, those things. Oh, boy, okay. Uh, so he was an Italian alchemist named John Damien de Falcias. I'm gonna, I'm gonna go with Falcias, uh, who in 1507 constructed a human-sized pair of wings. Is this Icarus? This is just the story of Icarus. Made from chicken feathers. Well, no, because it's, because it's real. Oh, okay. Because this really happened. Uh, so he made uh, a real pair of human-sized wings out of chicken feathers. Uh, Debian then launched himself <laughs> from the parapet of Stirling Castle, convinced that if he followed a southern direction, he would eventually land in France. For those who aren't very good at geography, Scotland and France, although not hugely distant from one another are significantly distant from one another. I mean, my issue is more him just launching himself off the parapet without any, like, like a hill or a small wall. To those who have been to Stirling Castle, uh, there there is, like, a little bit of a slope, but it is still high enough that you could seriously mess yourself up. So suffice it to say, uh, he didn't make it as far as France. He made it as far as the dung heap below the castle, <laughs> with only a broken leg to show for his attempt. Wow, incredible. Yeah. Thank you so much for sharing. Thank you, Birdman. Let us all thank the Birdman. All right, my fun fact is that off the coast of Thailand, there are children who can see like dolphins. So I came across this fact uh, from the Scientific American when they were talking about how um, your brain can change. And they said cultural and environmental factors have shaped how these sea nomads of the Mulkin tribe conduct their daily lives, allowing them to adjust their pupils underwater in a way that most of us cannot. The kids had to dive underwater and place their head into a panel. From there, they could see a card displaying either vertical or horizontal lines. Once they had stared at the card, they came back to the surface to report which direction the lines traveled. Each time they dived down, the lines would get thinner, making the task harder. It turned out that the Malkin children were able to see twice as well as European children who performed the same experiment at a later date. Did they say how they came upon this ability? Why this group of children are better at doing it than other groups of children? They thought it's because they spend so much of their life in the water, like mm -hmm. diving for food and living by the seaside. So they have changed like the way their pupils work in order to see better underwater. Okay. Wow, that that's pretty incredible. Again, in the same way that we should have the members of that Australian Aboriginal tribe working as sea captains <laughs> and pilots, uh I feel like these people should be doing some kind of underwater based espionage. There's a lot of um, underwater or, wa or water-based jobs that you think these people could fill. Uh, yeah, I mean, again, I'm not a head of HR. I'm not actively hiring. But if you are a head of HR uh, and, and you spend a lot of time in the water or around the water, like, 
go find these kids because uh, you could be making some big cash money. To be clear, don't exploit the children. Pay them a fair wage for their crazy... Or just leave them alone. <laughs> or just leave them alone. Leave the kids alone. Uh, just so... like moral of the story. Leave the kids alone, but not like alone alone. Yeah. Leave the kids at a safe distance where you can still see them. But don't stare at them. Mm. Unless they're your kids. Yeah. Should we wrap up Let's this wrap train up. wreck of an episode? <laughs> so we hope you've enjoyed today's episode. Thank you so much for listening. If you've liked the show, please give us a like, give us a follow, and leave a review. This has been Enter the Rabbit Hole. As always, reminding you to don't leave the kids alone. But alone, alone. Alone, alone, but leave the kids alone. All right, you you know you know you what get, to do, you guys. know what we mean. You get it. You, you know I'm it. talking to you. You know what we mean. All right. Bye-bye everybody. Ciao. Enter the Rabbit Hole is written and presented by William Grant and Alicia Palmer. The music was created by Glenn Marshall. More information and sources can be found in the episode description. You can email us at etrhthepod at gmail or follow us on Instagram at etrhthepod. Thanks for listening.